Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control, both auto, descent, engine command override off. Engine arm off. 13 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. And we're getting a picture on the TV. Uh, there's a great deal of contrast in it, and uh, currently it's upside down on our monitor, but we can make out uh, a fair amount of detail. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. It was July of 1969. Here on Earth, millions of people around the world were glued to their TV sets or standing outside staring up at the moon, knowing that U.S. astronauts had scored the big one in the space race that had been stealing the headlines around the world since Russia's launch of Sputnik over 10 years before. And now, JFK's promise to place U.S. astronauts on the moon by the end of the decade had become a reality. We had landed men on the moon. Account after account provided by NASA explained how we did it and what our astronauts experienced. But according to unconfirmed reports, there was other information kept out, things that might cloud the public's perception of what we had accomplished, things that might panic some and cause others to cast a negative cloud of doubt over all the great things that had been accomplished by the mission. What Armstrong and Aldrin experienced that first day on the moon has been a subject of controversy for years because there was a two-minute radio silence shortly after the landing, a silence in which, according to alleged leaked documents, two extraterrestrial aircraft watched the Apollo 11 landing and moonwalks from their perch upon the far edge of a crater. According to NASA, the two minutes happened when one of the TV cameras overheated, disrupting the reception. According to Timothy Good, author of Above Top Secret, in 1988, ham radio operators receiving the signals transmitted from Apollo 11 to NASA's Houston base intercepted this message. After Armstrong reports seeing a light positioned at the top of a crater rim, Mission Control responds by asking him, What's there? Armstrong answers, These babies are huge, sir. Enormous. Oh, God, you wouldn't believe it. I'm telling you, there are spacecraft out there, lined up on the far side of the crater edge. They're on the moon, watching us. I'm not sure he copied that. We have uplink uh, when we're on parks, don't we? Flight network, that's parks. Roger, Capcom, reminder. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. Neil, we can see you coming. Very clearly visible. Now that he's inverted, these are shame reminded. Also, I'm looking at one now that appears to have... 
I can see uh, some evidence of, of rays emanating from the uh, Capcom. Um, uh, at the foot of the ladder, the lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches. Okay, I just checked uh, getting back up to that first step. Uh, it's, uh, that doesn't collapse too far, but uh, it's adequate to get back up. Roger, we got it. Yeah, I think it's all. We'll suggest we stand by for a minute or so. That word play. Go ahead. Through, uh, uh, you have uplink, but not through parks. That's right. Yeah, okay. You're through uh, Goldstone, right. uplink flight. The ham radio intercept was discredited by the media, but later revived by a retired NASA communications engineer who had helped develop the communication systems that went into the NASA Apollo missions. His name is Chatelaine. He went further to say that before Armstrong stepped down the ladder, two UFOs were hovering over him. Aldrin managed to snap pictures of them, and these were published in the June 1975 issue of Modern People magazine on page 25. You can also find them on the Internet. Chatelaine went on to say that Armstrong and Aldrin's sighting had been deliberately squelched and discredited by the media and by NASA, although it was common knowledge at NASA. In a number of later press interviews, Aldrin admitted that they had been watched by a UFO on their trip to the moon, and that's as far as he ever went with it. Armstrong only talked about it in years later, off the record, and all we have is testimony from some of those who spoke to him, which we'll mention later in this story. Buzz Aldrin, in the movie Transformers Dark of the Moon, upon landing on the moon, actually says on a secret black ops line to NASA during the public radio silence, You cannot believe what we are seeing. NASA replies, We are not alone after all, are we? To which Aldrin replies, No, sir, we're not alone. A fictional movie admission to many. A safe way for Aldrin to finally tell us the truth to many others. You heard it. If this transmission is accurate, Neil Armstrong told Mission Control that they were being watched from objects positioned at the far edge of a crater. He determined that they were not a threat, and then he turned to the business of heading down the ladder and being the first man to step on the moon's surface. And if you think about it, had NASA included these parts of the transmission, all the coverage of the mission would have been clouded with wild headlines and press reports reading something like this. According to experts at NASA, both Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin witnessed UFOs shortly after landing on the surface of the moon yesterday, July 21st. Shortly after reporting their being watched from a lighted object positioned on the far lip of a crater as the ship landed, Mission Control asked Neil Armstrong, What's there? His answer indicated that very large and sophisticated alien craft were lined up on the far side of a moon crater watching them. I'll stop there. Now check your mind to see how well you're processing this. A news report like that would have turned years of progress into a comic strip. And the media would have demanded proof, and more proof. It would have been the topic of conversation around the world, with half of the civilized world claiming that the event was staged. The other half, now with curiosity aroused, demanding more on the UFOs and the presence of aliens. A total meltdown. All the hard work, all the missions involved, and people invested in not only delivering astronauts to the moon, 
but now charged with the responsibility of bringing them back out the window. And it would take tremendous focus to accomplish this. So what good would reports of aliens bring to the mission? Even 50 years after the moon mission, we still have deniers saying that it was all a hoax, despite layer upon layer of proof that we did it. Imagine the cloud that reports of alien craft on the moon would have cast over all this. Wisdom dictates that the purpose of the NASA missions is not to photograph and report on interplanetary craft of unknown origin. Although, I have to admit, that would be an interesting mission and series of reports. I think the world is ready for that mission objective now. Now, researching our astronauts, whom I have great respect for in terms of their experience, courage, level-headedness, and knowledge, I'm finding that a number of them agree on one basic principle which was expressed in these words by Scott Carpenter. At no time when the astronauts were in space were they alone. There was a constant surveillance by UFOs. That, folks, is as clear as it gets. Never having seen one, I accept the possibility of the existence of life outside our little planet here, including beings with spacecraft technologically superior to ours, due to the simple and clear fact that we on Earth are living beings capable of spaceflight. To deny the existence of any life forms outside of ours is to deny our own. It's pretty cut and dry to me, and it always has been. What interests me most isn't conspiracy theories, though because I believe our governments aren't obligated to share every discovery and every new technology with all of us. Yes, it gets my goat when they cover things up and then get caught in it and leave us wondering throughout our lives if we really saw what we thought we saw. There have been many leaks, and for years our government and NASA seemed to want to operate disinformation campaigns against those leakers. But I have seen a steady stream of responsible people coming forward in the past decades to tell us what they've experienced. They leave it mostly up to us to put the puzzle pieces in place, working with few facts, but lots of theory. And that's what I'm trying to do with this episode. Deliver the testimony of a number of responsible people and let you sift through what you hear to see if you can reach a conclusion. And I'm right there with you, trying to learn more. By the end of this episode, we will all hopefully know more than we know now. And I guarantee the journey will be worth it. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Let's start with some of the first guys up there, beginning with Major Gordon Cooper, a name that anyone with knowledge of our space program knows and respects. One of the original Mercury astronauts and the last American to fly in space alone. On May 15, 1963, he shot into space in a Mercury capsule for a 22-orbit journey around the world. During the final orbit, Major Gordon Cooper told the tracking station at Muchia, near Perth, Australia, that he could see a glowing, greenish object ahead of him, quickly approaching his capsule. The UFO was real and solid, because it was picked up by Muchia's tracking radar. Cooper's sighting was reported by the National Broadcast Company, which was covering the flight step by step. But when Cooper landed, 
Reporters were told that they would not be allowed to question him about the UFO sighting. Major Cooper was a firm believer in UFOs. Ten years earlier, in 1951, he had sighted a UFO while piloting an F-86 Sabrejet over western Germany. What he sighted were metallic, saucer-shaped disks at considerable altitude, and they could outmaneuver all American fighter planes. Major Cooper also testified before the United Nations, I believe that these extraterrestrial vehicles and their crews are visiting this planet from other planets. Most astronauts were reluctant to discuss UFOs at that time. He went on to say, I did have occasion in 1951 to have two days of observation of many flights of them, of different sizes, flying in fighter formation, generally from east to west over Europe. And according to a tape interview by J.L. Ferrando, Major Cooper said, For many years I've lived with a secret, in secrecy imposed on all specialists in astronautics. I can now reveal that every day in the USA, our radar instruments capture objects of form and composition unknown to us. And there are thousands of witness reports and a quantity of documents to prove this, but nobody wants to make them public. Why? Because authority is afraid that people may think of God knows what kind of horrible invaders. So the password still is, we have to avoid panic by all means. I was furthermore a witness to an extraordinary phenomenon here on this planet Earth. It happened a few months ago in Florida. There I saw, with my own eyes, a defined area of ground being consumed by flames, with four indentions left by a flying object which had descended in the middle of a field. Beans had left the craft. There were other traces to prove this. They seemed to have studied topography. They had collected soil samples, and, eventually, they returned to where they had come from, disappearing at enormous speed. I happen to know that authority did just about everything to keep this incident from the press and TV in fear of a panicky reaction from the public. In Colonel Cooper's letter to Granada's Ambassador Griffith at the United Nations in 1978, he says, I wanted to convey to you my views on our extraterrestrial visitors, popularly referred to as UFOs, and suggest what might be done to properly deal with them. I believe that these extraterrestrial vehicles and their crews are visiting this planet from other planets, which obviously are a little more technically advanced than we are here on Earth. I feel that we need to have a top-level, coordinated program to scientifically collect and analyze data from all over the Earth concerning any type of encounter, and to determine how best to interface with these visitors in a friendly fashion. We may first have to show them that we have learned to resolve our problems by peaceful means, rather than warfare before we are accepted as fully qualified universal team members. This acceptance would have tremendous possibilities of advancing our world in all areas. Certainly then it would seem that the UN has a vested interest in handling this subject properly and expeditiously. I should point out that I am not an experienced UFO professional researcher. I have not yet had the privilege of flying a UFO, nor of meeting the crew of one. I do feel that I am somewhat qualified to discuss them since I have been into the fringes of the vast areas in which they travel. Also, I did have occasion in 1951 to have two days of observation of many flights of them, of different sizes, flying in fighter formation, generally from east to west over Europe. They were at a higher altitude than we could reach with our jet fighters of that time. I would also like to point out that most astronauts are very reluctant to even discuss UFOs due to the great numbers of people who have indiscriminately sold fake stories and forged documents abusing their names and reputations 
without hesitation. Those few astronauts who have continued to have participated in the UFO field have had to do so very cautiously. There are several of us who do believe in UFOs and who have had occasion to see a UFO on the ground or from an airplane. If the UN agrees to pursue this project and to lend their credibility to it, perhaps many more well-qualified people will agree to step forth and provide help and information. Dr. Ed Mitchell was a United States Naval officer and aviator, test pilot, aeronautical engineer, ufologist, and NASA astronaut. As the lunar module pilot of Apollo 14, he spent nine hours walking on the lunar surface in the Fra Mauro Highland region, making him the sixth person to walk on the moon. He was originally selected in 1966 as part of NASA's fifth astronaut group, and it became a part of Apollo 13 mission operations team, which led to his becoming the lunar module pilot on mission 14. He was an outspoken believer that we are not alone, telling the St. Petersburg Times in 2004 that a cabal of insiders within the U.S. government was studying recovered alien bodies, and that this group had stopped briefing presidents after JFK. He also claimed to have been told by an unnamed official at the Pentagon that the Roswell incident did involve the crash of an alien craft and that bodies were recovered. The following is an interview with Ed Mitchell through Allen Disclosure Group, published February 2013 and available at YouTube. I fully believe that uh, we're not alone and have for many, many years, even though but at the time I went to the moon, it was the conventional wisdom both in science and theology, that we were alone in the universe. We're just barely out of the trees, even though we think we're rather sophisticated. But I do like to tell the story that my great-grandparents came across from southern United States to the west after our Civil War. And I went to the moon less than 100 years later. They came across in covered wagons. So from covered wagons to going to the moon in less than a hundred years in our lifetime is a rather significant event that tells us how primitive we have been until the modern era and we're still rather primitive. Because of my uh, openness to these things I did have many of the old-timers in the military and in the uh, intelligence community over the years wanting to get it off their chest before they passed away uh, allowed me to interview them and talk to them about it. And so my ideas became fairly well solidified in the fact we've been visited. We have to remember that right after World War II, the Army Air Force was separated and became the, Ar- became the Air Force, a separate branch of service. And that the of- OSS, which was the Office of Special Services, was disbanded and eventually became the CIA so that here was a major military organization and a major intelligence organization totally in disarray, newfounded, didn't know what they were doing after World War II and not really reorganized yet. And as a result of that, the President Truman at that time um, convened a very high-level committee to examine this alien or UFO phenomenon. They did come to the conclusion that it was alien, and the military uh, rightly came to the conclusion, if if they're hostile, there's nothing we can do about it. Therefore, their choice 
was to deny it and to hush it up and create a, the National Security Act of 1947, which validated that uh, uh, deception and covered it up and allowed the group to go underground, as it were. And we've been living with that now for 50 years. It is really the uh, beginning of the whole cover-up, the, the entire denial of this phenomenon. And uh, the addition of dismissal, disinformation, misinformation uh, to cloak and to discourage uh, investigation, to misinform, it's just been continuous for many, many years now. Eventually it came away from the fear, I believe, of uh, not being able to protect and do their duty to uh, the notion of power and control, controlling the knowledge and the technology. And the group involved with that is still doing it. We have created our reality here, and we have created it right now rather badly, for it's not a sustainable reality. We have created with our science and technology, instead of using it for the greater good, it's been captured by uh, interest, greed, self-service, uh, which is rife. And instead of using it, all of our technology and our brilliance and genius for greater good, we, we use it for self-service. And that's not going to work. It's important that we look at our civilization our place in history, use our tools of science for greater understanding, to promote the greater good, and that's what it's all about. Our fourth astronaut, Donald Slayton, a Mercury astronaut, who revealed in an interview he had seen UFOs in 1951. I was testing a P-51 fighter in Minneapolis when I spotted this object. I was at about 10,000 feet on a nice, bright, sunny afternoon. I thought the object was a kite. Then I realized that no kite is going to fly that high. As I got closer, it looked like a weather balloon, gray and about three feet in diameter. But as soon as I got behind the darn thing, it didn't look like a balloon anymore. It looked like a saucer, a disc. About the same time, I realized that it was suddenly going away from me. And there I was, running at about 300 miles per hour. I tracked it for a little way, and then all of a sudden the damn thing just took off. It pulled about a 45-degree climbing turn and accelerated and just flat disappeared. A couple of days later, I was having a beer with my commanding officer, and I thought, what the hell, I'd better mention something to him about it. I did, and he told me to get on down to intelligence and give them a report. I did. I never heard anything more on it. And another. On July 17, 1962, highly decorated Major General Robert White an American military aircraft test pilot, fighter pilot in both World War II and Vietnam, and record-breaking X-15 pilot, reported a UFO during his 58-mile high flight of an X-15. Major White reported, I have no idea what it could be. It was grayish in color and about 30 to 40 feet away when I saw it. Then, according to a July 27, 1962 Time magazine article titled Space Inside the Sky, Major White exclaimed, There are things out there. There absolutely is. End this story. On May 11, 1962, NASA pilot Joseph Walker said that one of his tasks was to detect UFOs during his X-15 flights. He had filmed five or six UFOs during his record-breaking 50-mile flight in April of 1962. 
just the month before. The May flight was the second time he had filmed UFOs in flight. During a lecture at the Second National Conference on the Peaceful Uses of Space Research in Seattle, Washington, he said, I don't feel like speculating about them. All I know is what appeared on the film, which was developed after the flight. To date, none of these films have been released to the public for viewing. Eugene Cernan, who we just lost January 26th of this year, 2017, but will never forget, was commander of Apollo 17. In a Los Angeles Times article titled, Cernan Says Other Earths Exist, in 1973 he said about UFOs, I'm one of those guys who has never seen a UFO, but I've been asked, and I've said publicly, I thought they were somebody else, some other civilization. Then there was Al Warden, highly respected Apollo 15 astronaut. In a lengthy interview in a PBS documentary produced for the 20th anniversary of the landing on the moon, Warden discussed his views that Earth was probably visited in the past by extraterrestrial explorers. He began by commenting on the well-known UFO interpretation of the vision of the prophet Ezekiel in the Bible. And a literal translation describes very clearly a spacecraft with the ability to land vertically and take off vertically. And it was an object that looked very much like the lunar module that we used on the moon. And if it's going to land vertically and take off vertically, it had to come from someplace and go back someplace. In my mind, the universe has to be cyclic, so that in one galaxy, if there's a planet, maybe that has arrived at the point of becoming unlivable, you'll find in another part of a different galaxy, a planet that has just formed, which is perfect for habitation. I see some kind of intelligent being, like us, skipping around the universe from planet to planet, as, let's say, the South Pacific Indians do on the islands, where they skip from island to island. When the first island blows up due to a volcano, they will have their progeny on all these other islands, and they will be able to continue the species. I think that's what the alien space program is all about. I think we may be a combination of creatures that were living here on Earth sometime in the past, and having a visitation, if you will, by creatures from somewhere else in the universe, and those two species getting together and having progeny. I am not at all convinced that we are not the result of that particular union some many thousands of years ago. If that is the case, in fact, a very small group of explorers could land on a planet and create successors to themselves that would eventually take up the pursuit of, let's say, inhabiting the rest of the universe. These are excerpts from his interview in the documentary The Other Side of the Moon, produced by Michael G. Leamy and broadcast by PBS in July of 1989. In June 1965, astronauts Ed White, the first American to walk in space, and James McDivitt were passing over Hawaii in a Gemini spacecraft when they saw a weird-looking metallic object. The UFO had long arms sticking out of it. McDivitt took pictures with a cine camera. These pictures have never been released. Our next authority is ex-NASA space program head Clark McClelland, author of the Stargate Chronicles, the man who worked for NASA as a spacecraft operator, also known as ground test astronaut, from 1958 to 1992, rose to the level of director of the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, and was familiar with everything and everyone that went into the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo space programs, his name being present on all the monuments that have been dedicated to them. His bio and credentials at his website, at stargate-chronicles.com are lengthy. You are encouraged to take a look. He was discharged from NASA in 1992, 
Legend has it, because of his openly expressed views regarding extraterrestrials and UFOs, a subject which had fascinated him long before he joined NASA, subjects which were and are still considered taboo for astronauts to discuss by NASA. In this rare interview with Netherland radio host Martin Horst, who has graciously given us the okay to replay it here, McClellan covers a number of very interesting topics. Horst has his own radio show and website at bbsradio.com forward slash ET First Contact Radio, where you can enjoy his live shows weekly as well as dig into some very interesting archives. Don't miss this one. I'll put the link in the show notes for you. I want to welcome you full-heartedly to the show. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to speak to your audience. Yes, my audience is always uh, very uh, keen to listen when I have such interviews. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, sometimes I have people who are really interesting, like yourself, and I've had Robert Salas and others, and uh, every time the story is different, and nevertheless... Very interesting. So, yes. Clark, what happened to you? I mean, you have been so long in the field. Um, why don't you start directly? Because I'm going to ask a brutal question. I like to. Uh, All right. I like to shock. Because. I like to shock people, my friend. Um, <laughs> what do you know? What are, What are NASA's biggest secrets about ETs and UFOs? Well, one of the first biggest secrets is NASA does not exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you told no, me yesterday. NASA, NASA was taken over by the New World Order, and it now flies missions, but they announced them as NASA missions, but there's no NASA any longer. Right. We had our three shuttles uh, retired when they should have still been flying. Mm -hmm. the, the two that were built late were definitely able to fly far more missions than they did and discovery was the third one that was part of the very uh, the initial part of our nasa space program mm -hmm. but then in came barack obama he retired all the nasa space shuttles oh my god now, okay now listen please everybody out there because this is very important The so-called International Space Program mm -hmm. was designed, created, built, and sent into orbit by the NASA, NASA space shuttles. I worked on those missions. The NASA, the, uh, the International Space Station that was supposed to be called the Space Station Freedom mm -hmm. was then called by the New World Order the International Space Station, which it is now. And it's controlled totally by Russia and China. They're 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 friends in China, but but they, China doesn't show up very often. But Russia, yes. Yeah. Now our astronauts 
cannot fly to the uh, space station without the shuttles. So they have to wait for Russia to schedule them on their ships. And it's over $6 million per person when they fly them to the International Space Station. $6 million? It's $6 million per NASA astronaut. Yes. Amazing. And how many astronauts are they flying to the space station and how regularly? Well, they, they usually send about three because that's all their spaceship will fit. Yeah. And they have usually two Russians and one U.S. NASA astronaut. And then uh, the NASA astronaut stays on the station. Maybe one of the Russians does, does too. And then they come back to Earth. And then later, a year, six, eight months later, there's a flight to there again with one NASA astronaut and two Russians again. Or they may have one. They may have another foreign nation astronaut that flies. Right. And that's that's the way the U.S. space program died. It was murdered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we have a Dutch astronaut who goes regularly to the space station. Uh, his name is Andre Kuipers, but I think he's a real coward because he's lying. He's not telling the truth about what's happening there, what they are seeing. Well, the thing is, with the NASA and other astronauts, including the cosmonauts of Russia, they were all under a very direct order. You do not tell what you're seeing out there, what came comes into your, the International Space Station, and leaves it, any UFOs or foreign other objects that fly nearby. If they do, their mission is over. They will never fly again. That happened to everybody on the Apollo 15 mission. Anyway. I have seen in the shuttle. In 1991, I went out to get a coffee then came back to watch the television screens I was, I was ordered to monitor. Mm-hmm. There were six screens. When I sat down, I looked at the first and second one, but then when I got to the third one, I looked at it and nearly fell off the chair and spilled my coffee on my lap. <laughs> there was a there was the uh, there was a direct photo taken from the space shuttle of the payload bay, and it was showing a eight to nine foot tall uh, creature. A humanoid creature, a head, two arms, two legs, a body, etc., with a helmet on, having orders given to two NASA astronauts that were floating with it out there. Wow. So the NASA, the NASA astronauts were receiving orders from the eight to nine foot tall, I, ha- I guess I could call it an alien creature because that shuttle wasn't made for somebody that fast, that, 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 that tall. Amazing. Behind the shuttle, I saw a spacecraft, apparently the spacecraft of this person or whatever it is. I don't know if it was a male, female, or what. Anyway, I didn't have a witness. The only witness of me that I would have had was my teammate. He was studying for his his master's degree the next morning. I locked him in our shuttle, not shuttle, but in our space, uh, in our, in our, um, in our space in our office at the space center mm-hmm. i locked him in our our vault i told him stay in there and study so he did and i i was monitoring when i saw this tall alien and two nasa astronauts in the payload bay wow okay i i observed the payload bay with the uh 
alien and the two astronauts for about a hundred for about a hundred and seven seconds. Okay, I was I was counting on my astronaut watch. Okay, about six, seven, eight weeks later, I had a phone call from another aerospace engineer that was five stories below the Earth in New Mexico. He was in a secret office there. Mm-hmm. He said, Clark, I'm going to tell you something. I saw the same type of eight to nine foot tall alien or whatever it is inside the crew compartment of the space shuttle with two astronauts that were suiting up to go out into the, the payload bay with this giant. The giant? This giant had to bend over so far so it wouldn't hit its head on the roof of the crew compartment inside the space shuttle. The space shuttles were not built for an eight to nine foot tall giants. <laughs> they were built only for about a six foot person, six mm-hmm. to six foot one inch. That's all. Anybody bigger than that was too large to go in there. So he was able to get through the uh, through the airlock and then go back out to the payload bay, and that's where apparently that, that giant and the two astronauts went following where what he saw them being in the crew compartment. So there's two separate shuttle missions, mine and this one. Our next experts, James Lovell and Frank Borman. In December 1965, Gemini astronauts James Lovell and Frank Borman also saw a UFO during their second orbit of their record-breaking 14-day flight. Borman reported that he saw an unidentified spacecraft some distance from their capsule. Gemini Control at Cape Kennedy told him that he was seeing the final stage of their own Titan booster rocket. Borman confirmed that he could see the booster rocket all right, but that he could also see something completely different. Lovell. Bogey at 10 o'clock high. Capcom, this is Houston, say again 7. Lovell, said we have a bogey at 10 o'clock high. Capcom, Gemini 7, is that the booster or is that an actual sighting? Lovell, we have several. Actual sighting. Capcom, estimated distance or size? Lovell, we also have the booster in sight. And here's a little more on the Apollo 11 Neil Armstrong Buzz Aldrin encounter from Maurice Chatelain, 1979, former chief of NASA Communications Systems. Chatelain confirmed that Armstrong had indeed reported seeing two UFOs on the rim of a crater. Chatelain believes that some UFOs may come from our own solar system, specifically Titan. The encounter was common knowledge in NASA, but nobody has talked about it until now. All Apollo and Gemini flights were followed, both at a distance and sometimes also quite closely, by space vehicles of extraterrestrial origin. Flying saucers or UFOs, if you want to call them by that name. Every time it occurred, the astronauts informed Mission Control, who then ordered absolute silence. I think that Walter Schirra aboard Mercury 8 was the first of the astronauts to use the code name Santa Claus to indicate the presence of flying saucers next to space capsules. However, his announcements were barely noticed by the general public. It was a little different when James Lovell on board the Apollo 8 command module came out from behind the moon and said for everybody to hear, Please be informed that there is a Santa Claus. Even though this happened on Christmas Day, 1968, many people sensed a hidden meaning in those words. The rumors still persist. NASA may well be a civilian agency, but many of its programs are funded by the defense budget 
and most of the astronauts are subject to military security regulations. Apart from the fact that the National Security Agency screens all films and probably radio communications as well. We have the statements by Otto Binder, Dr. Gary Henderson, and Maurice Chatelaine that the astronauts were under strict orders not to discuss their sightings. And Gordon Cooper has testified to a United Nations committee that one of the astronauts actually witnessed a UFO on the ground. If there is no secrecy, why has this sighting not been made public? Then there was Scott Carpenter, who didn't say much, but said it all when he said, At no time, when the astronauts were in space, were they alone. There was a constant surveillance by UFOs. And from Russia, Colonel Marina Lavrentovna Popovich. Colonel Popovich has flown every kind of aircraft there is in the Soviet Union, from large transport planes to MiG-21s. She holds 90 flight records. She's even been called the Chuck Yeager of the Soviet Union. Popovich has a Ph.D. in technical sciences, and her focus now is to get the truth about the existence of flying saucers out to the public. Here are some of the things she has to say about UFOs. Soviet satellites have taken photographs of flying saucers. Soviet scientists have concluded that flying saucers have been around for as long as our planet. Popovich has seen photographs of alien-slash-human hybrid children. After the glasnost changes that occurred in Russia, all kinds of things went on sale. The KGB files were sold in their entirety to Yale University, and two U.S. film companies bought the rights to the KGB UFO files. Soviet scientists and cosmonauts also came forward with what they knew. In 1990, Colonel Marina Popovich, who we just led with, held a press conference in San Francisco at the Russian consulate. During the conference, she showed amazing photographs of cigar-shaped alien craft in space that were each 15 miles long. The photos were taken by a Russian space probe, which mysteriously stopped working, then disappeared completely shortly after taking the photographs. Popovich knows her stuff. Besides being a colonel in the Soviet Armed Forces, she is also the wife of famed cosmonaut Pavel Popovich. Pavel was head of a Soviet committee on UFOs. And there was this from Yevgeny Krunov, Soyuz 5 spacecraft pilot in 1969. Is the presence of extraterrestrial civilizations conceivable? Of course. Before the uniqueness of the Earth is demonstrated, this assumption should be taken as quite legitimate. As regards UFOs, their presence cannot be denied. Thousands of people have seen them. It may be that their source is optical effects, but some of their properties, for instance, their ability to change course by 90 degrees at great speed, simply stagger the imagination. This from Sputnik. UFOs Through the Eyes of Cosmonauts, written December 1980. And there was Vladimir Kovalyanok, Major General of Aviation. On May 5, 1981, we were in orbit in the Salyut 6 space station. I saw an object that didn't resemble any cosmic objects I'm familiar with. It was a round object which resembled a melon, round and a little bit elongated. In front of this object was something that resembled a gyrating depressed cone. I can draw it, but it's difficult to describe. The object resembles a barbell. I saw it become transparent and like with a body inside. At the other end, I saw something like gas discharging, like a reactive object. Then something happened that is very difficult for me to describe from the point of view of physics. Last year in the magazine Nature, I read about a physicist. We tried together to explain this phenomenon, and we decided it was plasmaform. I have to recognize that it did not have an artificial origin. 
It was not artificial because an artificial object couldn't attain this form. I don't know of anything that can make this movement tightening, then expanding, pulsating. Then as I was observing, something happened. Two explosions. One explosion, and then half a second later, the second part exploded. I called my colleague, Victor Savinyak, but he didn't arrive in time to see anything. What are the particulars? First conclusion, the object moved in a suborbital path, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to see it. There were two clouds, like smoke, that formed a barbell. It came near me, and I watched it. Then we entered into the shade for two or three minutes after this happened. When we came out of the shade, we didn't see anything. But during a certain time, we and the craft were moving together. This from a videotaped interview with Giorgio Bongiovanni in the village of Koznikov, near Moscow, in 1993. So where does all this leave us? And what is being said or done today to bring us closer to the truth? And what is out there? Let's start with one of the best resources out there, MUFON.com, M-U-F-O-N.com. MUFON is currently the oldest and largest UFO organization in the world, and the only one that has a corporate office with a full-time staff, publishes a monthly hard copy and online UFO journal, holds an annual symposium, has a membership of over 4,000, has a computerized UFO case management system with over 70,000-plus UFO cases, has a structured field investigator training program with more than 800 trained field investigators, has a nationwide rapid response team for high-value investigations known as the STAR Team, has a trained underwater dive team, has its own television show on H2 called Hangar 1, and has an active business board of directors. MUFON is already leading the charge to solve the UFO mystery once and for all, and you're invited to join them on this great journey as both a member and an active participant. So give that website a try at MUFON.com, and I think you'll enjoy the journey. And here's a few more quotes for you. In a recent interview, renowned scientist Professor Stephen Hawking said, To my mathematical brain, the numbers alone make thinking about aliens perfectly rational. And this, If you extrapolate on the planets they discovered, there are a trillion planets in the galaxy. That's a lot of places for life. This from a scientist named Shostak, as quoted by ABC. We know that the majority of stars have planets. But what fraction of stars has planets that are more like the Earth? It might be one in five. The chances of finding it, I think, are good. And if that happens, it will happen in the next 20 years, depending on the financing. And this from Ben Rich, second director of Lockheed Skunk Works. We have things out there that are literally out of this world, better than Star Trek or what you see in the movies. We already have the means to travel among the stars, but these technologies are locked up in black projects, and it would take an act of God to ever get them out to benefit humanity. Anything you can imagine, we already know how to do. And this from Bill McDonald's, a forensic illustrator for the aerospace industry. It was Ben Rich's opinion that the public should not be told. He believed that they could not handle the truth, ever. Only in the last months of his decline that he began to feel that the International Corporate Board of Directors dealing with the subject could represent a bigger problem to citizens' personal freedoms under the United States Constitution than the presence of off-world visitors themselves. The Internet is covered with articles and blogs claiming that NASA is suppressing UFO proof, and actually, many of them are probably right. On the other hand, NASA is not a UFO reporting organization. They are a tax-funded government entity charged with the responsibility of exploring outer space and educating the public. 
they remain above the UFO issue, not because they're worried that the truth might panic the public, but because their mission is to educate us on what we know about the solar system and man's relationship to it. We have only scratched the surface of the astronauts and aliens controversy, and it is only one of hundreds of theories and stories that surround the subject of UFOs, aliens, and the rest. And the last question for you, where do you stand? We invite your opinions at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes and at Twitter, our address being 1001podcast. You can enjoy our shows by subscribing at iTunes, podbay.fm, stitcher.com. We've placed links to these in our show notes. Thanks to all of you fans for listening, and we ask that you share our show with others. Send reviews to iTunes and post to us at Facebook to let us know what you're thinking. And we especially appreciate it when you support us through our sponsors. Thank you, and thanks for listening. We also encourage you to tune into our other show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, found at all the same places. You can catch up on all our archives very easily at 1001storiespodcast.com. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.